0: This is not a partisan issue. It it really is not. And the problem often with our country is we try to reduce things into the binary world as Demo-Republican. I've listened to your show enough to know that you realize that's not the case. And we as Americans have so much more in common. The lines that divide us are nowhere near as strong as the ties that bind us. But this political industrial complex that will try to parse us along these tribes and make us believe that we're different, that's a problem. We're at a perilous moment for our democracy, where you're seeing larger and larger portions view an us versus them within this country and not just us, where we're all one people with one destiny. And the the real challenge I see, again, is how do we make other people care? I don't need to change one person's mind who might believe that we shouldn't pass universal background checks or gun licensing or I don't have to change one person's mind. All we have to do is get the people who share our beliefs, which is the majority of us, to do a lot more. But we are going to need a lot more committed Americans to, despite your whipped-up differences with somebody, that you can still find ways to create connection and see common dignity and see common destiny.
1: podcast. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Roll On, where two, I might add, very well-dressed, sartorially conscious podcaster, one, an ocean swimming journalist and author. That would be you, Adam. The other, an ultra endurance athlete turned writer and podcaster, namely me, bring our perspective on culture, on world events, on art, sports, politics, and try to just uh, make a little more sense of this crazy world that we live in while we're at it. What do you think? I think that's the perfect encapsulation
2: to what we do here, Mm. Rich. Concise. It was concise. I think it's the most (laughs) well-descriptive piece on the roll on yet.
1: Well, we continue to iterate on this format and play around with bringing new things to you guys. So we've got a very exciting show today. First, we're gonna talk about a few interesting headlines from the world of endurance, which has kind of become our habit here. Uh, We're gonna share a few things we've been enjoying respectively, but really the thrust of today's discussion is focused on a more sobering subject to say the least, specifically America's perplexing, problem and obsession with guns, why rational gun control continues to elude us and what we can and perhaps should expect to be done about it. It's a discussion that will be bookended by a call with Senator Cory Booker, which is very exciting. He was kind enough to join us with his thoughts on this heated and important matter. So let's kick it off. I'm gonna begin with my standard opener. How go you? Mr. Skolnick.
2: Rich, did I ever tell you about the time I realized I was dead broke in the middle of Mongolia? You somehow forgot to share that story with me. I was in a supermarket in Mongolia where I realized I was running low on cash. I had weeks to go in this research trip was early on. And I was, I attempted to, uh, what do they say? Push, was it push? Uh, I guess. Take a month off paying for my car. (laughs) Delay my car payment. Yeah, that's a very. uh, I don't know. I was was attempting to, you know, I built up a little bit of wiggle room, and so I was Mm -hmm. attempting to, basically, decline to pay, Mm -hmm. and in actuality, accidentally paid three times the normal car
1: payment. How did you happen to? I don't want to get into the technical difficulties. No financial wizard, you. So That's what I take from this story that you're broke, only halfway into.
0: Dead broke. In so the, you
1: spent all your money overpaying for your car and <laughs> stranded yourself and in, I was in Mongolia? In the middle of Mongolia.
2: Luckily. No Ubers. No, there's there. no Ubers there. There was a, a camel. I, I called for an Uber and a camel came over.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: Five stars. Um, but, uh, but luckily my future wife, April Wong, happened to be with me. <laughs> And she, Very
1: forgiving of your financial oversight. And she
2: was in much better financial condition than I at the time. So the lonely planeting continued and uh, on we went into
1: the Gobi desert. The planet became a little less lonely.
2: Yes, and I thought about that because I was having this weird scent memory. You, you know how memory and scent are kind of like connected. Mm-hmm. And today April played this morning uh, while I was making breakfast, she played an Indian song that she remembered from her travels. And I swear to God, I would, it, it, this ended up getting us into this Mongolia discussion. But while she was playing this song that I hadn't heard before, I swear I smelled Nag Champa.
1: Mm-hmm. Has
2: that ever happened to you? You hear something, a memory's triggered and you smell something that's not there.
1: Usually it's the other way around. Okay. I smell something and it triggers the extreme, vividness of a memory that I didn't even remember that I had.
2: Right, like I was, I swear to God, I smelled like the the incense wafting in Varanasi, you know, like Uh when I was there and I was was like, anyway. Hence the uh, mala beads that you're wearing today. I'm in a, maybe it's all (laughs) related. You know, I got into the beads during my deadline. That Uh was just like all encompassing when I had that poofy beard. And I, the, all of a sudden I started wearing beads. Is there a story takes. behind
1: where you procured said beads?
2: Uh, no, I'm not sure. I have like a whole rack of beads of different kinds. I, I, was, uh, I was deeply into beads mm. at one time. I'm not, unless so now. Unless so now, so you, they now weren't, they, they're weren't.
1: they not the provenance of some you know, holy guru figure.
2: No, but I used to actually use them because I'd use them to do meditations, whatever. Um, right. And so now I don't meditate quite that way where I'm, where I'm doing mantra meditations. Uh-huh. And so I haven't used them in a while, but I used to actually use them. So I'd pick them up wherever, but yeah, there you go. Otherwise the deadline beard is dead.
1: I know, the, the beads would have gone well with the, with the beard though.
2: They, Sorry they, to see they did it better, go. well,
1: I wore them last time. <laughs> yeah, but did you wear them on top of your shirt? I think they were tucked in they, last This time, time they're on yeah. top
2: because if, if, it, I don't wanna get into the whole biological issue of a hairy chest and beads, mm. but it's not always comfortable. Right.
1: Well, there's something to the idea that you're wearing mala beads and my feet are adorned in vegan Birkenstocks right now. Oh. And we're gonna talk about gun control, a couple progressive libtards. We're yes. gonna pontificate upon we are. this this you know very, Heightened issue. But two strikes against us <laughs> right like off the couple. bat. Yeah. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> hopefully,
2: so, hopefully you're not. Right. Hopefully you're not watching this. You're just listening to it, and you think those guys make a lot of sense. I had to ditch my flip flops for the
1: Burks. Right. Though. But what's going on with you, man? How it's happening with there? The, you the go. Bat? That was the prompt. I was. You see, I have to like spoon feed you. Well, I didn't know if we were done talking about me. I always assume we're still talking about me. Right. Well, We can do that. <laughs> We know the audience (laughs) a lot. We could just do it, we could do a whole show. Tell me more, Adam. What other tales from the lonely planet can you share? Should
2: I ever tell you about the time I was in Jordan and (laughs) I went up to a shawarma stand, I was Uh pre-vegan, and I had no idea if I could afford a shawarma.
1: Mm, You did not, but Mm. you know what? We're gonna put a pin in that and you can tell that story some other time. (laughs) Back, (laughs) Back to my vegan Birkenstocks. Yes. So, and this relates to like my fitness and my back problems that I've shared about. Uh, I'm working with a PT right now who basically said, you gotta get rid of the flip-flops. Okay, Very painful uh, counsel, I might add, because essentially I just, if I'm not wearing Solomon running shoes, I'm wearing flip-flops. Right, That's my preferred footwear. And and you
2: can forget about Chuck Taylors. If he's, if the flip-flops are out the window. I own a couple
1: pairs of Chuck Taylors, but. Not gonna work. Yeah, for the back, I was told no bueno. Uh, and told that the, the vegan Birkenstocks would, 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 would be a better option. So that's why I'm wearing those today. But yeah, so.
2: So wait, so, so you're saying dad shoes, it took you a long time to get to dad shoes, but you
1: should consider that a victory. I have some dad shoes and I had to, I'll get to it, but I had to kind of do a thing in San Diego the other day and I had to go buy a pair of dad shoes because I don't have <laughs> any sh- any sort of respectable shoes that I can wear in a, in a more formal setting. Oh. But anyway, I'll get to that. All right. Um, but yeah, so as I've shared, like I've had these back problems and it's really got me um, benched from doing the things that I love, swimming, biking, and running. I've sort of been told like, not now, we gotta work on these other things. And so I've been focused on all of these annoying little physiotherapy exercises that are all about activating my glutes and my hamstrings because they're so weak in comparison mm-hmm. to these other muscle groups. And it's not even strength exercises. It's really just getting these muscles to fire. Because when I tell my brain, like move my leg in a certain way, like it doesn't move or I use the wrong muscles to move it. Mm-hmm. So it's been really educational and interesting playing around with that. but. You know, I hate it. It's annoying.
0: You, I wanna hate, just, you hate. I just want to go. I
1: want to go. I want to go run. I know. I want to go. I want to go swim. I want to do these other things. I but know. I'm committed. I'm all in. I'm trying to do these pelvic mobility exercises and this whole like routine. Straps and it's just it's straps and things. Stra- I'm not even at the straps yet. I'm more. I'm. I'm at, at the more elementary phase okay. of this whole thing. Which has required kind of a, a new level of humility and patience, right? right. Um, because I want to just burst out the door, but here's where I'm at. I'm accepting of it and committed to this journey, and we'll see where it heads. But haven't had any huge back flare-ups. It's not like my back pain has gone away, but you know, hopefully, I'm on a good trajectory with all of this. So that's great. That's and you good, look, and
2: you look fantastic,
1: hey man. And that's what counts. You got. <laughs> The hair and makeup person just left. You can thank them. Okay. (laughs) Uh, But it's been a cool week. My eldest daughter Mathis graduated from high school. That was exciting. Can't believe that she already graduated from high school. It's just crazy. Do do I congratulate you? A newborn. No, don't graduate me. Graduate uh, or congratulate Mathis. I know, but do do
2: people congratulate the parent in that regard? If they
1: do, it's a little weird. Especially because it's high school. It's like, you should be able to graduate high school. I think so. (laughs) I think so. (laughs) It's worthy of celebration though. Yes, yes, it's major. Um, and then I had to jet from that to go down to San Diego uh, where I attended this conference called Life Itself, which is this event that Sanjay Gupta, personal friend, friend of the podcast, created in partnership with this other guy called Mark Hodosh, mm. who was the owner and co-founder of Ted Med. Okay. And they created this new conference called Life Itself. Sanjay had just sort of invited me to attend. And- I didn't know you guys were buddies. Super Buddies. Um, yeah, we met uh, like, I think back in like 2013 when okay. he did a story on me and we've just stayed in touch. And I just went with no expectations. I didn't really spend a lot of time researching what it was all about. I just thought it would be cool and nice to support Sanjay. And he was kind enough to invite me to attend. And then a couple of days before the event, he texted me and he's like, hey, uh, I think it would be really cool if you did like a fireside chat with Lance Armstrong. What do you think about that? So it went from being like, oh, I'm just gonna chill out to, oh, now I have to like do a thing. And of course I'm gonna say yes to that. But then it was like, okay, what do I ask Lance? How is this gonna go? It's just a 20 minute thing, but it ended up being great, really fun. The speakers at this conference were off the chain, like next level thinkers, geniuses at the cutting edge of health and biotech and longevity. I saw more than a few people who I just love to get on the podcast and also presentations by people who have been on the podcast like David Sinclair and Ariana Huffington, Dean Ornish, Sanjay, of course. Mm. And what's cool is the presentations are slowly being dripped out on cnn.com. Uh, the one I did with Lance, I'll let you guys judge how that went, uh, should be up there soon, it's not up there yet. But if you go to cnn.com slash life itself, you can see some of the presentations again with more being dripped out. So it was really fun. It was, it was, in a, it was an incredibly inspiring, uplifting event. And I go to a lot of conferences and this was like a cut above basically anything else I've ever attended.
2: How forthcoming was Lance? Were you getting into the nitty gritty or had you done that kind of, you hadn't done we it had any. We did a podcast
1: several you years did, ago. Right, yeah, um, yeah. And you know, I, I, I guess I would just say, watch the video. Okay. You guys make up your own mind, you know.
2: Nice. I'll leave it there. Sounds like sounds like you were hard hitting.
1: <laughs> no. What are you gonna do in 20 minutes? They're like, 20 minutes. I'm like, that's one question. So did I know, you do it? <laughs> I can do <laughs> I can do two to three hours. Twenty minutes is much more stressful. Right, that's much You know, harder, like yeah. how do you even get your head around that? Like it's not in my skill set or toolbox. I, I actually but, think it is, you know, like I always thought after
2: our first interview and then like kind of listening to your show. I always thought like you're one of the best interviewers there is, so you could do any format. I always thought like your destiny was like NBC was going to come calling or 60 Minutes was going to come calling. That's what I
1: always thought. Mm. Maybe this That's could be very, the beginning of very, it. Very, very kind of you to I say. I always thought that. Very kind of you to say. Yeah. Um, we'll see. I like doing what I'm doing now. I know. I'm not doing this so that I can get another thing. I know, no, I'm not implying that that was your yeah. idea. I'm just
2: saying was I, cool. I could see it.
1: I will say it went well, people seem to really enjoy it. Um, so you guys can decide. And when it goes up, I'll share it out on social media. Beautiful. Yeah. Uh, final thing before we get into the next uh, little segment is I just wanna thank everybody who joined the giveaway for the 50 copies of Finding Ultra that were handing out to kind of celebrate the 10th anniversary. We got a big response out of that. That opportunity closes on June 9th, Mm. which is the day this podcast is going up. We're recording this on, what is it? The sixth today, which is Monday. But in any case, we're gonna announce the winner soon and just appreciate everybody who kind of signed up for the mailing list. And we also got a lot of cool ideas about how to leverage that mailing list uh, to create something that people would actually enjoy seeing in their inbox as opposed to feeling irritated and quickly unsubscribing.
2: Oh, right. <laughs> you know? Or you could be like me and just never unsubscribe and just watch these emails come in your <laughs> inbox. Li- start li- taking up residence well, this in is true, your like, inbox.
1: I subscribe to some sub stacks and some newsletters. Yeah. And I would say that more often than not, like I just don't have time to even read them. Right. And no matter how many times I unsubscribe from mailing lists that I never signed up for every day, I would say like 60 to 70% of the incoming emails are just from lists that I never signed up for. And I'm just constantly deleting emails. Hmm. Is that your inbox experience?
2: My inbox experience is I never delete them. And then I have like thirty thousand emails. And then (laughs) Gmail says you have 90, you have 1% left. And then I go on a mad, like <laughs> slashing, deletion,
1: burn. yeah, <laughs> clear cut. I delete them as I go. Yeah. Well, I delete them as I go, and then when I'm busy, I just leave unread the ones that I need to go back to. Right, and then it's a crapshoot as to whether I ever go back to them. I'm
2: going to start Which deleting causes as I go.
1: Irritation with people that you know I'm trying to do stuff with. Really?
2: Do you ever? Have you ever had? I've had that once where I was just sick of getting this one newsletter. <laughs> <and> I unsubscribed. <laughs> Uh-huh. And then I thought, like at the time, this was way back. At the time, I thought that there's some bot, like that person's never going to see me.
1: Do they, that. they look at their unsubscribe, so they know that you. <laughs> <laughs> and then I found out. Yeah, <laughs> I got like, like unblocked. Blocking somebody on on social media, they took it personally. <laughs> they did, and they they, yeah. they dropped me like a like a bad habit. <laughs> you, hey, you invited that. Drunk. I did. I did. I, did. Was, I wasn't upset. All right. Well, let's start. With the light before we go into the dark, uh, we need to report back on the sub seven hour Ironman project. Uh, I think it's fair to say that this podcast is now officially a Christian Blumenfeld Stan account, particularly in light of his accomplishment this past weekend. Uh, It seems like we're checking in on Christian every single week here because he's constantly, you know, breaking records and eclipsing ceilings on what he's capable of. So yeah,
2: I mean, every time he races, it seems like he's he's doing something special, so.
1: Right, so our favorite Norseman did it again Just to recap, in the last 12 months, uh, (laughs) this guy was not only crowned Olympic champion, he claimed the WTC series championship. He set the fastest recorded Ironman ever in Cozumel. I guess that's not a world record though. There was some something about that.
2: No, it's not considered uh, a world record because of the down current swim in Cozumel and like something about the bike distance. But then when he won in St. George, it was the fastest time ever at a world championship, but it was not the same course as as in previous years.
1: So he was most recently crowned world champion in in St. George. And now he's become the first ever athlete to go under seven hours in an iron distance triathlon as part of this sub seven project, which uh, much like the sub two marathon project where Kipchoge was trying to go under two hours in the marathon, This allowed for drafting, they created a course that was very conducive to going fast. And not only did Christian go under seven hours, he absolutely demolished it. He went six hours and 44 minutes, Mm. which included a 225 marathon, which Mm -hmm. is unbelievable. Um, There's some graphics that I found on social media that I wanted to share. And, like these and it splits was supposed, he was supposed are unbelievable. to go up, he
2: was supposed to go, this was actually a race. He was supposed to go up against Alistair Brownlee, right. but he got ruled out, he had a stress response to his hip. And so they brought in Joe Skipper, who happened to be the guy that had been trash talking. Yeah, the he's the
1: smack talker, <laughs> which makes for better television. No, it was great. And he, and he fucking screwed down. He, he was not messing around. No. He was not messing around. He was ahead as,
2: you know, off
1: the bike. Right, yeah, so Christian got out of the swim at 45, Joe was 49, and then Joe just threw down an unbelievable bike leg going three hours and 20 minutes. 316. So, or is it 360? Yeah, oh, yeah, 316, oh yeah, 316, sorry. Oh yeah, the proje- sorry, I was looking at the projections. Um, yeah, three, oh, so yeah, Christian swam 48, Joe swam 53, and then Joe, Threw down a three sixteen on the bike. That's riding one hundred and twelve miles in three hours and sixteen minutes. That's, That's unbelievable. unbelievable. It's unbelievable. That's crazy. Um, How's that even possible? Like eight minutes faster than Christian. But Christian, you know, he knows how to stay within himself and not race anybody other than himself. Stick to his plan. And uh, so, is that a thirty mile an hour or greater than thirty mile an hour I average speed? I, I, I can't do math. It's fast. Jeez. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Um, but then Christian, so Christian threw down, oh, his, I'm sorry, I, I misspoke about his marathon. I said he ran 225, but he, he ran 230. Right. And Joe ran 236. I mean, these are crazy fast. So Christian went 644 and Joe went 647. Yes. Um, unbelievable. And then on the women's side, they called that the sub eight project. Nicola Spring and Kat Matthews both. Uh, readily eclipsed the eight hour mark. Nicola Amazing. went 734 and Kat went 731. Um, these times are just Look so crazy Look at those marathons fast. on those two. I know, 245 and 246 marathons.
2: And apparently, uh, so when Joe went by uh, Christian on the bike, he talked shit, this is supposedly what happened. Uh-huh. I didn't get to see the, I, I saw a little bit, I, I read about it, but I didn't get to see or hear the. I guess, whatever that he said. And then uh, on the run, Christian gave him a little little something on the way when, <laughs> Did he? when he passed him at like what the 17K mark. I don't know. I couldn't find anybody that had the transcript of what they
1: said. <laughs> Unbelievable. Um, I know there was a live cast. I I didn't catch it. I know you didn't catch it either. No. Uh, but I heard that it was really well done. And um, I think that's interesting because in contrast, the WTC that oversees Iron Man, They always live cast the Iron Man races and they're pretty notorious for being substandard. People are always complaining about them showing the wrong thing or being in the wrong place at the wrong time and all this kind of glitchy and all that kind of stuff. But apparently, uh, with this sub seven, sub eight um, broadcast, like they crushed it. Yeah. So hopefully, you know, Iron Man needs to get its shit together when it comes to these live casts.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, no no doubt. I mean, it, it worked and people loved it and it. And uh, it sounds like everyone was really thrilled to be a part of it. And it seemed like Christian loved being part, of, even though he is part of team Norway and they do work together as a team, um, as a lot of triathletes do. It can be, you're out there racing alone. So it seemed like he enjoyed mm-hmm. the, like, the big team. You know, they had like right. obviously world-class marathoners pacing them. They had uh, professional cyclists pacing them. So uh, you know he might it must have been fun to be in in a pack and to be able to work that way. Sure,
1: I mean two observations before we move on. One, obviously the course was fast, but it really just goes to show you how significant drafting is. Yeah, you know if you can go that much faster. I mean, basically when you're tucked in on the bike behind a group that's breaking the wind for you, there is an effortlessness to the whole thing that makes a huge difference. So not only does that Count towards the incredible bike splits, but also allows them to be super fresh for the run. Fair. Um, and the the second observation being that let's not forget we pointed this out in the last roll on. Christian was not prioritizing this. This no. was just kind of like a one off thing for fun that they weren't even really focused on. Right. So the fact that he goes, you know, he he went as fast as he did without overthinking it too much is kind of amazing. It, it's
2: definitely amazing. Yeah. I, mean, he, he, I mean, I mean, I wouldn't say he was fresh as a daisy on the run. He said he had uh, cramps at the 10 K mark. Mm. And I'm thinking, I had cramps last night in the middle of the night as I was sleeping, <laughs> so. Oh, Adam. And I almost cried, but he finished his marathon.
1: Yeah, well, you can call Larry David about it. <laughs> um, good for you, Christian. We look forward to getting you on the podcast after Kona. All right. That's when we're doing we after it. after Kona. I think we do Are we going before or Kona? after? Are we doing Kona? I don't know. Probably not. Oh, all right. We'll see. Uh, we're <laughs> maybe. I said I would look into it, and I've done nothing to look into <laughs> yeah, it since we last talked about it. So that's what I, I've done. I don't know. <laughs> all right. Well, then we're just in the same place we were <laughs> okay. last
0: time. Let's, let's check. More will be revealed.
1: Um, the other thing that caught my eye in in terms of uh, you know news from the world of sports and endurance. Yes is uh this Terry McKeever story. So Terry McKeever is a legendary coach in swimming. She's been the head coach of the UC Berkeley women's team for many, many years. I think it's fair to say she's the most prominent, most victorious female coach in swimming history. Mm. I mean, she's about my age. She's been around forever. I've I don't know her personally, but I've, you know, even like way back in the day, like she was around, like everybody in swimming knows her. She was suspended and has been put on administrative leave uh, in the wake of this scandal where more than 20 current or former athletes of her have come out to report bullying and verbal abuse on her behalf. So this is a kind of, you know, set off a bit of a a earthquake in the swimming world as, you know, basically she's, you know, being one of swimming's leading coaches and the architect of one of college sports premier programs. I mean, she's produced Olympians and NCAA champions and all kinds of standouts, both in the pool and in the, the classroom for decades. She's the first and only woman head coach of the U.S. Olympic team. She led a squad that included six future current or former Cal swimmers who earned a combined 13 medals at the 2012 games in London. She's won four NC2A team titles. She's produced 26 Olympians Mm. who have combined for 36 Olympic medals in 29 seasons in Berkeley. So you can't argue with her track record. And yet this story breaks and not for nothing, it was broke by the Orange County Register which is kind of an interesting outlet to kind of break a big a, story. They have a paywall. I know, they have a paywall. But in any event, like what's interesting is the Orange County Register. it's like a little local paper, yeah, but they but consistently break big stories in the swimming world for yep. some reason. So yep. whoever is on the swimming beat here is like on top of their game. Yeah, no doubt. In any event, in this expose, we learned that at least six Cal women swimmers since 2018 have made plans to kill themselves or are obsessed about suicide due to McKeever's bullying. 24 current and former Cal swimmers, eight parents, a former member of the Golden Bears men's team and two former Cal athletic department employees have told the kind of safety and sport organization that McKeever was a bully who for decades has allegedly verbally and emotionally abused, swore at, and threatened swimmers on an almost daily basis, pressuring them to compete or train while injured or dealing with chronic illnesses or eating disorders. It just goes on and on and on. It's like it does not paint a very good picture. And
2: uh, no, sounds
1: you know, like, I think the, it's, uh,
2: like the Bobby Knight of the swim, right? It's of the sort swim of game. It's
1: so, so the broader kind of conversation around this is. Around this philosophy of coaching, that Bobby Knight school of coaching, that win at all costs kind of philosophy, right. uh, we're we're kind of seeing the end of that, for good reason. Right. Like, there was a period of time. I mean, back when I swam, my coach exhibited a lot of these, you know, <laughs> some similar tendencies. Who was Is that your coach? Skip County right, Stanford, Skip like Kenny, he was, right, yeah. you know. I thought he got, he, 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 he got deposed on a similar situation. Well, right? ultimately his downfall was the result of, he had a personal grudge against one particular swimmer named Jason Plummer, okay. who recently passed away this past year. I think we talked about yeah. it on Roll On. Yeah. And he hated Jason so much that he doctored the record board, like the all-time performance list and removed Jason's name from the record boards, even though Jason had, had swum times that would have, right. uh, you know, allowed him to be on those lists. Jason called him out on it. There was a big scandal, and ultimately, you know, Skip had to step down. So he, he it was,
2: on cooking the books. That's he was it. cooking.
1: He, he cooked the books. But yeah. then there was there's a lot of other stuff, and we don't need to get into it now. But the point being that, you know, he was pretty hardcore, and this was the 80s, and right. that was a time where you could get away with that stuff and maybe even get praised for it like it was
0: definitely it was
2: sort those of a, people a mark Bobby Knight was revered by yeah, these basketball
1: exactly. journalists so culturally we've moved forward and thankfully this is no longer acceptable i had no idea i mean i'd heard stories that terry was a hard charging coach but i had no idea the extent to which you know this this was going on so
2: i read one of these stories that you had up there um, the more recent one apparently like because the athletic director is saying all the right things now, but apparently was sitting on this information for ages. Well, apparently and been, it's
1: been going on forever. right? And, right. He,
2: and he's, been, he's been fielding these same complaints that the OC uh, registered journalist mm-hmm. has, has now documented. Right. This is like prize winning stuff because he's, he's, he's shaking the core of this incredible right. swim program. But apparently like they were contacted then by someone who was supposed to be like an assistant coach there that maybe they thought was taking over. And the swimmers came to what they thought was a meeting, and she was there, mm. and she's like, and basically said, "Are you guys ready to swim?" And they mm. all bailed, right? And then you know, like he had to chase them out, or she had to—I don't, Jesse, so so and so, I don't know if it's a male or a female, um, but so like even as this was ongoing, Terry was still there, basically trying to hold court, right? And then finally, that's what was the last straw, and they they made the announcement. So you know. Berkeley trying to cover their ass and like saying they care about the swimmers. It's like, you know, a person like Terry McKeever, they, rev- that the, it's not just journalists that revere her or whoever, it's the ADs that revere her. Mm-hmm. Like she's produced so much for the school. Right. We
1: can't shake this up. Like look right. at the track record. Right,
2: you and know? then that's how these people continue generation after, you know, year after year. I mean, she's been up there for a whole generation. Basically, yeah. right?
1: Oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I think she's she's fifty six or something like that, and says, has been, yeah. you know, been in coaching, you know, shortly after she graduated college, if memory serves me. So there you go. Um, and it's just interesting, you know, this this philosophy of being so intense to drive performances. I mean, your her track record demonstrates that on some level. I guess you can make the argument that it was effective, but it's a short-term solution. Like That's ultimately- That's what she would make the
2: argument. But, yeah. this,
1: but in college, you only need
2: short-term. In Olympics, you only need right. short-term.
1: You only have the same
2: roster once.
1: I just never responded to that. No. And I just don't think like now with everything that we know, it's unacceptable. Like you wanna bring out the best in your athletes, like empower them, give them agency, make that coach athlete relationship, a collaboration where there's open communication and a sense of, empowerment. But this idea like you're a piece of shit. Like these girls were all reporting, like they were so driven for her approval that it right. drove them to the edge of like mental health insanity. Right. So anyway. Well, another one down. Uh, yeah, I know, right? Like how many coaches are are still out there who are behaving badly like this? Probably a lot. <laughs> I, would a yeah, lot. I, I would guess a lot. I know. Guess a lot.
2: <laughs> anyway,
1: <laughs> uh, let's move on. This is also a Robbie Ballinger Stan account yes. podcast. and Robbie Ballinger. And we've all talked at length about his Colorado crush where he went out and spent a whole summer doing all this crazy stuff. He ran up all the 14ers in Colorado. He ran the Leadville and the Colorado Trail and all that kind of stuff. In any event, they have made a documentary about this that was uh, directed by Friend and friend of the podcast, Reese Robinson. Mm -hmm. Reese used to work with us and take pictures and make videos with us. Okay, and Reese, you know, followed Robbie around for the better part of that experience, and they've created something special. It's going to debut on on uh, June eighth on Robbie's new endurance platform on YouTube, which is called what is it called? The Audacious
2: Report. Yeah, I think it's Robbie it? and Reese together are behind that one.
1: Yeah, exactly. Um, oh, they launched that channel together. The audacious. It's not Report. just the,
2: it's not just a channel; it's a platform. So they have a website, uh, and the website is going to be a place to go to to you know check out films, podcasts, and articles featuring endurance athletes. Oh, that's uh, cool! I didn't yeah. know
1: that. Where did you read about that? Uh, Robbie told me about. Oh, he it. did. That's yeah. very cool. Yeah. So go to the Audacious Report YouTube channel. You can watch the the trailer for the Colorado Crush. It's yeah. already up. If you're watching this on YouTube, you can see it here. And then June 8th, which actually that's the, the so, so it'll be up by the time this podcast yeah. goes up, which is cool.
2: And you'll find it on that YouTube channel. And and uh, yeah, the idea is to, uh, for is also for athletes to consider the Audacious Report a place to announce big adventures and goals mm-hmm. and things like that. Right on. So cool. Congrats um, guys.
1: Yeah. Awesome,
2: and the film is great. I saw it. Oh, you did? Yeah, I got a sneak peek, and it's uh, it's fabulous. The cinematography is wonderful. It's really intimate. You really feel like you're part of the crew, mm-hmm. watching Robbie do this stuff, and yeah. and and then also seeing the uh, how spectacular the scenery is and where he's doing it. It's really cool. It's got awesome. that big. Feel, but also the intimate, uh, kind of fly on the wall mm. feel as well. So, congrats, guys! All right,
1: man. Well, I look forward to talking about it. Yep. Um, before we take a quick break, you want to talk about our our next favorite person? The other person, the other person we stand for, Bo Burnham, the,
2: the funniest man alive today. Oh,
1: he's so good.
2: <laughs> he is the funniest man yeah. alive, right?
1: He's pretty damn funny.
2: I think he's the funniest geniusly guy, geniusly talented. Yes.
1: Creative person, um, he released uh, outtakes from his special that we talked about at length on the podcast. Yeah, inside where he just strings together on YouTube for free uh, all this stuff that didn't make it into the final cut, and it's an epic watch. It's that amazing. I highly suggest everybody. Check I, it out. I
2: I think I have ten minutes to go. I've been just this has been nibbling yeah. on it. It's got outtakes of stuff that you'll recognize. It's got completely new numbers that mm-hmm. he never put into the podcast, including, I mean, into the the film, including a podcast. Right, that's uh, the one
1: that seems to be resonating on social media and getting shared the most. So it's it's pretty transparent who he's poking fun at yeah. in that. Uh, and I'll just leave it at that. You guys can check it out, but it's pretty incisive. Yeah, and 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 there's some more uh,
2: Jeff Bezos trolling, which I'm always here I for. I know,
1: there's a couple things in there, <laughs> but he just can't get off the Bezos <laughs> no. obsession. I, I think like now he would do an Elon.
2: So like if Probably. he was making the next one, Probably. don't you think Elon would be yeah.
1: someone that he'd go after? I love the fact that He's such a prolific creator and really a product of social media and YouTube. Yes. But he's mature enough now to really not participate in the social media ecosystem, other than to tweet like once every eight months that he has some new thing out to share with everybody. Yeah and everyone goes wild.
2: Yeah. 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 You know? Good for him. He's uh I feel like somehow this was more depressing though than the actual film.
1: Mm. I still have I've only watched a couple of clips, so I haven't had time to sit through Pretty and fun. go through the whole thing. Pretty fun. Um, but Bo, if you're listening, I'm gonna remove Adam from his seat and place you there if you're ever so inclined. Oh. It would be an incredible podcast. Not not on the wall, right. so on, I just can't to have be a here. one-to-one. I, I can't. You could can be can't, here. You just I can't, can't, sit, can't, you can't sit in that you can't <laughs> sit in that chair. <laughs> he would sit in that chair. <laughs> okay. Adam. Um, all right, let's take a quick break and then we'll come back with our main topic. My favorite is their double IPA, not just another story, but basically you just really can't go wrong because everything they make is brewed to perfection, worthy of trying yourself, which you can now do at gobrewing.com. That's gobrewing.com and use the code RICHROLL for 15% off your first purchase. We're brought to you today by Birch. If you're serious about optimizing your sleep, listen up. and the craftsmanship is just next level. I've got one in every room of my house. I love it, pretty sure you will too. And right now, Birch is giving 20% off all mattresses and two free EcoRest pillows at birchliving.com slash richroll. That's 20% off and two free EcoRest pillows. Sleep better with Birch. Should we talk about guns, Adam? I think we have to. We do have to. Yeah. How do we do this though it's so difficult to figure out how to approach this subject matter it's so devastating and unwieldy um, and uncomfortable you know I think we can all agree that what we've borne witness to just over the last couple of weeks is heartbreaking to say the least and I've struggled with how to think about this how to approach it I do feel compelled I feel like a responsibility to discuss it, even though it's not fun on the podcast, mm-hmm. but how do we structure this? You have a thought?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think if we frame it like this, is, this is the deal. So we're 23 years since the Columbine massacre, which was mm-hmm. shook everybody up. That was in a high school outside of Denver, a decade since Sandy Hook, which I thought at the time would have been the event that spurred action because there's nothing, you, could, you couldn't imagine a worse thing than what was it, kindergartners being targeted mm-hmm. by a madman with an AR-15. And then we're only 10 days since Buffalo, since that racist massacre in a, in a supermarket um, where 10 died. Uh, and then you know, we had just talked about the murder in Austin of an athlete. Right, Mo Wilson. Mo Wilson. And we ha- recorded that
1: yeah. literally the day before Uvalde. Yeah. And you had pointed out this issue around guns, which was sort of prophetic. And then I had to kind of append the blog post and the social media posts around that episode to remind people that we had recorded it in advance of Uvalde and that's why you know it was not discussed.
2: Yeah, but I mean, I guess the real question, I think people want to know from you is kind of, how did this land for you? Where were you? How did you, like, what what were your feelings when you heard this was going on? And like, what were you doing? Were you paying close attention to it? Were you trying to avoid it because it's so heavy? Like, what, what were you doing?
1: I mean, in between, you know, I wasn't glued to the 24 hour news cycle, uh, but of course I was, you know, paying attention to what was going on. I mean, it's devastating, you know, as a parent of, uh, you know, such a young person, when you become a parent, it becomes, all that more heightened. I mean, it's unbelievable in elementary school, like Mm -hmm. how could this possibly happen? And when you think about the 23 years since Columbine and the decades since Sandy Hook, and then you consider the fact that in the short period of time between Uvalde and today, there's actually been 23 more mass shootings in the United States. Like look at this article, like it's unbelievable. I don't know how they're, defining mass shootings. I guess I think that's it's three or more. Three or more. Three or more. Um, so obviously shot. these aren't all school shootings, but no. it's really devastating. And it's so strange that no matter what happens, we can't seem to move forward in any kind of meaningful way to address this problem. So I wanna talk about that, of course. Um, I don't know that I can offer anything that hasn't already been said particularly with respect to like the emotional experience of what we've all collectively experienced. Yeah, I mean,
2: I think because it unfolded, it was like, I mean, I was busy day after day during this whole thing. And at some point I plugged into it right around the time when we started to realize that the police line on this thing was some bullshit and that there were complications mm-hmm. to say the least and how they addressed this problem and how there was somebody yeah, alive that's a whole
1: other right thing but, but that like went down. yeah
2: and so then when that was going on is when I kind of plugged into it and it was just you know when you have Parkland and Columbine then you have Sandy Hook and Uvalde you just
1: it's hard not to be super angry about the whole thing. You're I mean, angry. You're so you're, outrageous. You're, d- you're
2: despairing, you're like, you know, in my house, we, we are friends with a lot of families with young kids obviously. And, and the moms are just like, you know, looking for other places to live, you know, like that don't have this problem. Let me give you some statistics I found to show you why people are kind of leaning in that direction. Gun deaths so far in 2022, Just so far, the first six months, not even full six months, five months and change, 18,697 gun deaths. Mm -hmm. Of those 8,335 are murders, 10,362 are suicides.
1: Hold on, let me just interrupt you. These statistics are coming from this site called gunviolencearchive.org. And in the time between you jotted those stats down in this outline. On Sunday. Yeah, then you know earlier today that gun death total was at eighteen thousand seven hundred, and yeah. I just refreshed it just now, and it went up to eighteen thousand seven hundred and thirteen. Right, like so, it just it it notches up minute by minute.
2: Right, and they they have uh you know they have seventy five hundred sources. They're they're getting law enforcement reports. They're getting government sources and media sources. That's how they're. It's kind of like, I guess, farming the internet to come up with mm-hmm. this database. And uh, 284 murder suicides, that's a plus four since Sunday. Uh, 246 mass shootings in 2022 already, 12 mass murders, 153 children under 11 were killed, 320 are injured. I know this is hard to hear. I'm not trying to make it worse, but I think it's important for us to understand this as a baseline for the rest of this conversation. Mm -hmm. 554 teens killed, 1,451 injured. 25 police officers killed, 162 injured or killed, 485 gun events used in a defensive situation. So that's 485 in a defensive situation, 634 unintentional shootings and 512 school shootings in the United States in primary or secondary school since 2014.
1: Right, so amongst all of those statistics, the ones that jump out to me as most egregious and, and heart-wrenching are 153 children under 11 killed and 512 school shootings in the US since 2014. And this is not a problem that other countries have. No. This is completely unique to the United States.
2: It's not even close. I mean, listen, you have, you have um, the best examples are in, in the 90s, there was a mass shooting at a, at a workplace, I believe in Australia and immediately
1: they changed, they all changed the, the law was. and
2: people voluntarily gave up their guns. New Zealand after the Christchurch massacres at the mosques overnight, they took, care of it. they took care of business. There's something going on here and you can point to the constitution if you want. That's what a lot of people are going to go to, but there's something going on here. It's, to me, it's a little bit deeper than that. Obviously that's part of it, but we are not willing to change in the face of these kinds of outcomes. Not only are we not willing to, change completely on a dime like some of those other countries have, but we're also not willing to even do incremental changes. And it's not that we're not willing, it's that somehow the political apparatus isn't set up to be able to get that done. So, cause it, the majority of people are willing for, to do that. Right,
1: and we're gonna get into that. Yeah. But What's your really all, well, we're, we're offering, listen, Adam, we're offering up lots of prayers and lots of thoughts. Mm. That's not nothing, right? Right, right. You know, look, I will preface, my take on this by saying that I'm not against gun ownership. Uh, There's lots of people that responsibly own guns. That's fine. Most gun owners are responsible. I'm not a gun person, but I have friends that are. And, you know, I think that the statistics bear out that most gun owners support rational and reasonable gun control. And we'll get into those statistics. And I support that as well. And I, I, you know, I just think that there is, Zero reason why it shouldn't be incredibly difficult to purchase a gun. The bar to accessing a weapon, particularly a semi-automatic or an automatic weapon should be incredibly difficult. Every other thing in the United States that is dangerous or poses a safety threat to others is heavily regulated. Mm. And we accept that, except when it comes to guns and we'll get into the reasons, the culture, how it roots into the second amendment and all this sort of stuff. But as you pointed out, other countries with responsible gun control just do not have this issue. So yeah, I'm fed up, I'm despondent, I'm sick of the thoughts and the prayers, but I also feel this sense of despair or powerlessness that anything will ever get done here given our social and political climate.
2: Yeah, I mean, I I completely agree with you on everything you just said. Um, It's difficult to believe it's going to happen. I will say for the first time, I feel like even just some fear about like it could happen. I mean, listen, there was a situation at Zuma Beach. I don't know if you ever heard about this, but there was someone that was arrested here that that deputies got to him and he had several loaded automatic weapons in his van or in like he had a trench coat on in the middle of a summer day and it was right where we swam a lot, like just like at Zuma, right How where long ago, westward in Zuma. When was this? It was like a year or two ago and someone saw him and reported him, saw someone acting squirrely and reported him and the cops got to him. But like, he could have just gone down the beach. I mean, like it could happen anywhere. Mm-hmm. It's still, a. am not, I don't wanna overstate the problem. It is still, the odds are obviously minuscule that it will happen to you, but it could happen to you anytime, anywhere you live. And for the first time, that fear is kind of dripping in. Probably because I have a young kid. Probably because my wife is Australian and she thinks it's kind of batshit crazy that nothing gets done when you have this kind of a problem. Like, what mm-hmm. does it take? How many more children is it going to take? Yeah. And uh, so I think that. I mean, on a, I also think like, when it comes to weapons like AR-15s, you know, to me it's like. I I always think of the joke of like there should be no president who wants to be president. Like it should we should only have reluctant presidents. Like people who want to be president should be immediately be disqualified from the job. Right. Just on basis if they want it too much. If you
1: want it too much, you're immediately disqualified. Right. If you apply to
2: own an AR-15, you should immediately be turned down just because you want it.
1: (laughs) Only those that do not want AR-15s get ar 15s That's that's in my
2: fantasy land. So. Um, but yeah, for, for the most part, I, I'm with you on, on all of this. So, you know, but how do we, you wanna feel hopeful. It's hard to feel hopeful in this moment. Like it was a very tough week to be thinking about everything that went down, the way it went down. The fact that this guy waited till he was 18 mm-hmm. and then bought it, even though he had- No problem. Even though he had social media posts buy, out there.
1: Did he buy them online? I can't remember. No, I think he went to a gun shop, a shop
2: or a show. I don't know, mm-hmm. I, but he—I think he bought him in person. He waited till he was 18. He um, had social media posts that were alarming out there. Nobody yeah. reported him. The guy at Sandy Hook was given a gun for, by his mom. So, like, right. listen, age limits will only help so much because the mom gave him the gun in the Sandy Hook situation. So we're not trying to say any solutions are perfect solutions, but it would be nice to try something.
1: Right, try something, like let's get into the solution rather than throw up our hands and say, well, we can't solve this problem. There's nothing that can be done. We're just gonna have to learn to live with mass shootings. Like it's insanity. It is insanity. insanity And Because for every proposed solution that you offer, there's a rebuttal as to why it won't work. Trevor Noah did a pretty interesting monologue on this the other day, and I'll link that up in the show notes. But he basically goes on this rant where, you know, kind of taking on that argument of why all these things won't work and just basically saying we have to do something like, okay, it's not perfect. And maybe it won't work as well as we hope it might, but we have to be in the process of trying these things and iterating it because that's, how you make progress, but to sit on your hands and just say, well, I guess there's nothing we can do is complete insanity.
2: Right, it's insanity. I mean, right when it happened, I I did tweet out that this is not a mental health issue. It's an access to deadly weapons issue. I do believe that. I don't think it is a mental health issue. I've looked at the statistics. Anyone who says that it is, is kidding themselves. That's not to say people who do these things are not mentally ill. It's to say that there's other countries with mentally ill people where it doesn't happen. And the reason is, is they can't get the weapon. So it's the same thing we talked about with Moe's killer. If she was just upset and distraught and like having a breakdown, but couldn't fire a weapon, Mm -hmm. you know, there'd be three lives that would be Radically different right now. Yeah. I not mean, to mention sure. all the family that members. That
1: doesn't mean there isn't a mental health problem. Clearly, I, there's a mental health problem, and anybody who goes into an elementary school and shoots it up is mentally unhinged. Of
2: course. But the fact that we have mental health issues in this country is not the reason it happened. No,
1: it's the free, unfettered access to guns right. that allows the mentally unstable person to perpetrate the harm. That's and that's it. what needs to be addressed. Yes. So, Why don't we go through all of these things? And just as a caveat before getting into that on the subject of AR-15s and mass shootings and school shootings, in order to be kind of intellectually rigorous about this, I do think it's important to point out that, of course, the mass shootings and particularly the school shootings are gonna capture the headlines because it is so devastating. But when you go to this gun violence website and you look at the statistics, you realize that Those are, you know, but a very small portion of the total incidents of gun violence, injuries and deaths every year. Like you can even go to all these charts and More than half are suicide. And so, you know, the AR-15 is like the low hanging fruit because that's the gun of choice for these sorts of incidents. But most of these gun violence incidents are by dint of, uh, you know, a handgun, generally, you know, and often a semi-automatic handgun. We'll get to some reporting around this, but David Frum has been pretty good on the subject matter as a traditional conservative voice writing in the Atlantic about this topic. And um, he has some pretty insightful things to say about how we think about the school shootings versus the bigger problem that goes less addressed because it's so persistent and endemic to our culture, which is just gun violence. and you know, private gun owners in their home and how when you have a gun in the home, even for self-defense reasons, it becomes a catalyst for a lot of this harm that right. we're seeing. But in any case, you know, to kind of go through these opposition points, you said the first one, which is this is a mental health issue, not a gun. Issue,
2: Which is like the first thing right. all the Republican leaders I saying. I think it's both,
1: you know, it annoys me that we have to pick one or the other. Of course it's both. Like, can we not talk about this in a nuanced way? We have a gun issue and we have a mental health issue. There are mental health concerns. Like I said, nobody shoots up a school if they're not mentally unhinged. And we also can't extricate these individuals and the harm that they're perpetrating from the impact that social media is having on radicalizing these individuals. There's a New York Times article about this that, that certainly you happened shared in, with me. Yeah, that's about the Buffalo, Buffalo. guy. Yeah, and they kind yeah. of go through his entire social media diet and they can pinpoint like where he, you know, gets activated and how he becomes more inclined to violence mm-hmm. by tracing the videos he was watching, et cetera, et cetera, et, mm-hmm. et cetera. So you know, that's the larger issue also that comes into play. And I guess my point being that this is not a, uh, something that we can look at in a binary context, like all these complicated things are coming into play, not the least of which is gun culture, right? Yes. When you're seeing on social media, these families where they're all holding their AR-15s and things like that, like what is the message that we're sending and how is that being interpreted by young people? So. In my opinion, we do need better mental health programs, but the truth of the matter is for all the decrying about how this is a mental health issue and not a guns issue, you know, the Republicans or the right have really done very little on either front. It's, you know, it's sort of a talking point to say it's a mental health issue, but it's not like they're hard at work in addressing that.
2: No, the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, in April, slashed over 200 million dollars from the Texas Department budget that oversees mental health services. Mm-hmm. And as soon as Evalde happened, he said it was a mental health issue. Right. Um, mental health has never been an issue that Republicans have championed in any in any budgetary kind of way. It's always been kind of a scapegoated thing. And so this is what's happening. So, but when you say it's a mental health issue, not a guns issue, and then you do neither, you know, why are you in power? That's the one thing I, I want to like when this something like this happens, right? You're in power, you wanted power, you're there. How can you possibly wanna be a power player and have see something like this happen and do fucking nothing?
1: Because you're inferring that the reason they're in power is to represent the people's best interest. When in truth, power is there to basically extend power, right? Right. And in order to extend power, you have to play to your base and you have to appease the people who are funding your campaigns.
2: So you get to power and your service is power itself. It's not the children that you are supposed to care for.
1: It's just insanity. I mean, that leads to the next opposition point, which is my favorite we need to arm the schools with militias and we need to, you know, restrict ingress with having just one door, you know, in and out of these schools. How how would fire departments feel about that? Let's create a (laughs) fire hazard out of, I mean, (laughs) this idea, you know, and and sort of Ted Cruz is the face of this one. Mm. Like, let's just make sure that there are armed militias outside of every school and there should just be one door. Mm. Like, does he actually believe this? You know, because to me, I'm like, you're either stupid or you're a liar because this is just more insanity. Let's not look at the real issue here, which is how a young person has such unfettered access to a powerful weapon that can destroy so many people. Instead, let's skirt around that and come up with this other absurd rationale for addressing this situation so we can sidestep gun control altogether. I don't think he's stupid, but didn't he? He can't believe in his heart did, of hearts that this is a real, did, that that is a, a viable solution. I have no problem. idea. Didn't
2: he go to the NRA? didn't he, isn't he one of the few people that turned up there and spoke at the at NRA, the NRA conference?
1: I believe he was. I don't know, I think he did. Well, one thing I know for sure is that when the Uvalde funerals began, he was playing poker and he shared a video of himself playing poker which at the very, to give him the most charitable interpretation of that is in unbelievably poor taste. So I, I don't understand the mentality of somebody who thinks that that would be a good idea to share that video of him playing poker on social media in the midst of this crisis. And to literally look at camera and talk about patrolling schools with militia, basically saying that the solution to this gun problem is more guns which is all the more absurd by virtue of the fact that the police completely bungled their ability to manage the Uvalde situation and allowed this kid to go into the school and sat on their hands and did nothing and even prevented parents from jumping into action. Now, when you have a kid who's wearing a bulletproof vest and he's completely armed to the gills and he's got all of these jacket, you know, like the, the ammunition the, no, oh the the, uh, the
2: the yeah the um
1: the cartridges the cartridges exactly right. yes. and this automatic rifle and then you have cops who are they're not on an equal footing with that and no. they're afraid of their lives so but so
2: you're supposed to put your life on the line for children sure. if you're a cop i mean so, you're supposed to
1: but basically it's exposing yeah. the fruitlessness of that option right i mean
2: you know mind. it didn't work um I have family members that have guns. I have no problem with people who are gun owners responsibly. I will say it takes a special kind of asshole to go to an NRA conference days after the Uvalde massacre. That's my feeling Mm -hmm. about it. Like if you go there, whether you're a spectator, a purchaser, you have a gun show, you're speaking there. that That says a lot about your priorities, man.
1: What's interesting about the NRA and the power that it wields as a lobbying organization yeah. is that it's completely out of step with its membership. Because if you look at the polling and the statistics, you realize that people overwhelmingly support rational gun control. Like yes. you, you pulled together some polling on I did. this. You wanna go um, through it? Yeah, maybe let's just go through that right now. Okay. So the majority of
2: Americans support the right to own a gun. That's just the facts. 40% of households have at least one firearm. A lot of this is from this Pew Research uh, study that came out in September, 2021. So they did a lot of polling on it, on this issue and from a variety of vantage points and came up with this. So the majority of Americans do support gun ownership. 40% of households have at least one firearm, but three quarters of Americans believe gun violence is a big or moderately big problem. And uh, 53% favor stricter gun laws. That's as of April, 2021. We know that the number has risen since Uvalde. There's been some polling since then that has shown that that number has gone up, possibly approaching 60%. That might seem low, uh, but remember, this is, there's an urban rural divide going on here and people in, the, in rural areas will have more guns and will favor having them a lot more than the urban resident. Um, there is, let's see, eighty-seven percent of Americans. That includes eighty-five percent of GOP voters want legislation that prevents mentally ill people from buying guns.
1: Eighty-five percent, eighty-seven, of GO-
2: and eighty-five of the GOP. Okay, yes. yeah. right, eighty-five percent of GOP. So that's voters. great.
1: Like that's a really powerful statistic. Yes,
2: and eighty-one percent favor strict background checks. So that's an overall eighty-one. Sixty-four percent want to ban high-capacity magazines. That's over ten rounds. That's mm-hmm. what you were talking about,
1: right? Magazine. That was yep. the word I was yep.
2: searching for. Yep. And 63% want an outright assault weapons ban like we had for what 20 years or so that just expired not too long ago. Mm-hmm. The most alarming statistics I could find though is this recent CBS news poll. I think it was, it came out today, maybe in the last couple of days, 44% of Republicans now say that mass shootings are something we have to accept.
1: It's so strange to hear that in contrast to this polling that 85% of GOP voters want to prevent mentally ill people from buying guns. Right. Like how did those two things square with each other?
2: I think it just square, there's a percentage of that that want it to change, but don't think it will. So therefore Mm -hmm. they are kind of more like, it's not going to change. Therefore we need to accept it as it is. And there is some reporting, like if you look at the, more conservative uh, judicial branch, it's gotten more conservative, it's gotten. It's hewn more towards constitutional conservatism, which means second amendment, kind of taking it literally to a point where it really never was intended. Remember when the second amendment was written, people were sh- shooting guns with muskets and it was like one little ball mm-hmm. uh, and it took like a couple of minutes to load that thing. And now it's a different of story. Of course, which yeah. is
1: why it's problematic mm-hmm. to be a strict constructionist or to try to intuit, you know, the hearts and minds and the manner in which the founders, you know, meant these words to be put into use. Yeah, why
2: don't you get into the second amendment? I know you had some stuff on the second amendment.
1: Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, as we kind of go through all of the, uh, you know, opposition points, it's like, well, we have a second amendment right to bear arms, you know, the second amendment specifically to quote it, says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. And when you kind of parse that and try to understand what it's saying, you can't help but think, well, what does well-regulated mean? What does militia mean? And all of these words and phrases over the years have been interpreted by the judiciary to the point where we've broadened how we define those things to the extent that we allow people to bear arms in the way that they do today. Uh, There was a case, a Supreme Court case, uh, I think it was 13 years ago, I'm not sure, District of Columbia versus Heller, where the court for the first time recognized people's constitutional right to own firearms as individuals, not just as members of a well-regulated militia. Because prior to that, you could say, well, are you a well-regulated militia when you walk into an elementary school and gun everyone down? Well, Heller allows individuals to fall within that definition. Which which just doesn't make sense. Right, but when you think about what the second amendment really means and how it was intended, basically James Madison, was thinking of it as a way for states to repel the danger of the federal government, right? Right,
2: and at the time state militias were basically people that lived at home and they got got the call and they came out with their guns.
1: The union being formed out of this tension between states rights and federal rights, right? Mm -hmm. And at a time where states really wanted to be kind of independent nation states within the Republic. We think about our country as a democracy, but it's really a democratic Republic. What are the states Rights vis-a-vis the federal government. And what should happen if the federal government extends the boundaries in the exercise of its power, we need to reserve the right for people to rise up against that power, which makes sense. But nobody like to your point of muskets, nobody could have imagined guns progressing to the point that they are today. And I don't think any founding father, if they had been you know, given a looking glass to see what's occurring today would interpret what they meant by the second amendment to allow what is unfolding before our very eyes in real time day in and day out.
2: Yeah. And so that one case basically is what expanded the aperture from well-regulated regu- uh, militia to individuals.
1: Right, so it allowed people to bear arms in their homes, right. but it was not unlimited in scope. It did not permit the right to keep and carry any weapon in any manner whatsoever and for whatever purpose. So there were sort of you know restrictions on that. And what I mean by that is it, it is totally constitutional to impose conditions and qualifications on the sale of arms like universal background checks. Nine out of 10 support this, we went through the polls. What's interesting is, is that half of the people who are polled already believe that universal background checks are a thing meaning federally right. mandated background checks. They don't realize that actually many states don't require this. And one out of four guns are sold without a background check.
2: And, and background checks are criminal background checks. They're not like the kid in Uvalde didn't have a criminal record. So he would have gotten cleared anyway. Mm. Um, some people are saying, let's, you got know, you to be 25 to rent a car. Without special dispensation, maybe we should do something. Twenty-one to you know, you have to be twenty-one to buy a six-pack of beer. Maybe you should have to be twenty-one to purchase a gun. But there's a columnist at the New York Times, uh, Ross Duetot. I don't forget how to. Uh, I don't yeah, know. I know
0: him. Yeah, uh, he. Uh, oh, yeah, I have that
2: opinion he, piece here. He is saying, look, instead of doing that, why don't you make it really hard for troubled young men? To get these guns, and one way of doing that isn't an outright ban or an age limit, but if you are a young man and you want this gun, well, then you have to go through a lot more hoops than a fifty-year-old. Sure, or, you know. Uh, so, the, and the hoops seems would include, reasonable. Uh, uh, like a social media audit, audit two letters from people who can vouch for you in writing that you're not, you know, a, a strict background check, some counseling, perhaps. Um, something real, something like, how about if you just required a, a class to be able to be licensed and then to buy a weapon. If you just had to take a class, like mm-hmm. driver's ed, Like driver's head, yeah. And you had an instructor right. in front of you, you would weed out a lot of these people. Mm-hmm. If
1: you just had to take a class, like just that. But there's nothing we can do, Adam. Right. We can't do anything about this problem.
2: I I can't wait to talk to Senator Booker about this because I know there's a group of senators, a bipartisan group trying to hash out something to get something moving. We'll see if that prevails or not in the next weeks. But um,
1: It's so frustrating and infuriating that we can't get off the dime on this. I was listening to Scott Galloway the other day. mm -hmm. It's sort of like, okay, we understand where the right sits on this. Um, We understand the left's perspective on this as well why can't we move the needle at all? And he called it a war between the wrong and the ineffectual, right? The yeah. left not being able to basically accomplish anything and the other side being wrongheaded in how they're thinking about this problem and their reluctance or failure to address it at all.
2: You know, I was looking, I was thinking about it, like why are guns so uniquely American? And you think from a storytelling perspective where I always default to, We're a country born of revolution and bondage where guns played the key role of liberator and oppressor. We had the wild west expansion, the manhood that came along with the guns, the high plains drifter, the John Mm -hmm. Wayne shit that happened in real life in 19th century. And then obviously on the big screens, then you had in the eighties kind of this hip hop culture where guns became a, a way of life in the inner cities and kind of manhood as well as dominance. But Other countries love Westerns and hip hop and they don't have our problems. So then you come back around to this bigger problem and it's not just access to firearms, but like, what is it about us? Like, why do we lack empathy and responsibility for one another in a way that other countries don't? And I really do believe that we do have that problem. Like we don't care about another's welfare as much as our own here. And that's different than the way it is Mm -hmm. in a lot of countries. I'm not saying that other countries are, you know, perfect and angelic or anything. But there is an acknowledgement that our fates are tied up with one another.
1: Yeah, it's a it's a great insight and I think it's very true. And I think it tracks back to the genesis of the country where liberty became the priority. Like all these people who came to America so that they could do what the fuck they wanted to. Right. I mean, that's bred into the DNA of how this country was born, right? And I think over time, that empathy has constricted and extends perhaps only to one's very small circle. And as we become more and more isolated and less sort of communitarian in how we live our lives, ensconced in our you know homes on cul-de-sacs, et cetera, we're more and more separated from our fellow individuals. I think that sphere of empathy, you know, continues to dwindle. And what gets eclipsed in all of this is the other side of liberty, which is responsibility. Like you can't have liberty without responsibility. And in the United States, people are gung-ho for liberty, but when it comes to talking about responsibility, no one really wants to rise to that occasion. And this is something I talked at length about with Ryan Holiday when he was on the podcast recently. we didn't talk about it in the context of guns specifically, but it's certainly applicable to that. Like we want what we want and we wanna be able to do whatever we wanna do. And when it comes to our responsibility to the collective, we don't wanna hear about that. And that is a very weird American thing.
2: It's, it's a self-destructive seed that seems to be like replicating, You know, mm-hmm. like if that's how we feel, there's a de- self-destructive kind of code that's gonna just could destroy it all mm-hmm. because if you don't care, and that's the biggest problem, why we can't, and we're getting more and more polarized, and we demonize one another to the point. I mean, I realize I called anyone who went to an NRA convention an asshole, so, <laughs> which is demonizing. <laughs> yeah. But at the same so time, you're, you're, yeah, like call, <laughs> at least I, you're it, calling yourself out with I some am, level of self-awareness I'm not, around I'm not that. Saying, I'm not saying I'm not part of the problem. What I am saying is both things can be true. Mm -hmm. And we do have this empathy gap. And until we start to respect one another and care about each other's fates, the problem is it does feel like when you're on the left, it does feel like we care about people's fates more than the people who are the strict individualists, which are tend to be on the right. And so that's kind of comes with its own thorny inability to then talk to each other, because no one likes being talked down to and no one likes someone who's a selfish mm-hmm. person. So we have to figure out a way to look past that. Hopefully that's going to happen. That's what senators and congressmen are supposed to be able to do, right? right. That's what politics is about. Which is
1: why you know I, I'm so interested to talk to Senator Booker. Like, why is this such an intractable problem? Like, what is the lived experience of being in the Senate, being passionate about this issue and not being able to kind of get any traction to get things voted on at the very least. Like, how are those obstacles created, faced, met, and hopefully, you know, at some point overcome?
2: Well, and how do you live with yourself if you're on the other side of it and your 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 whole goal is to scuttle votes like this? Like how do you live like Do people live in the absence of guilt? And like I live with guilt. It's hard for me to wrap my head around, (laughs) yeah, like
1: like the mentality of somebody who who is trying to prevent all of these measures from going into effect. I mean, it is Occam's razor. Like you can say whatever you want and throw all those oppositional arguments out there. We need to arm the schools with militia. You know the ad hominem attacks. You're just a a libtard. Second Amendment. You know whatever. But Ultimately, like, what is the most obvious thing that we could do right now? We can restrict access to deadly weapons from people who are not suitable or mature enough to handle them. Right. Can we not at least accomplish that? We all agree on this. Right. People that are trying to block this from getting past or being put into into motion, I I have a really hard time trying to understand. And you know what? Maybe I'm missing something. The other argument being like they're they're going to take all your guns away. Like nobody's saying that. No. We're just saying that they're getting Let's that be because d- it did here. happen
2: in Australia, right? So that's what happened in Australia. But they passed a huge, kind of all encompassing gun control measure mm-hmm. and people did give up their They guns. don't have a
1: Second Amendment. And they don't have a Second
2: Amendment. I also think it's funny these people running for office, how often they're disparaging government. Like, you know, Marjorie Taylor Greene does it all the time. Right. She, By the way, she works for the government. She is part of the government, <laughs> uh, hates the government. She's part of, she hates her, that's self-hating. She hates herself. Dr. Oz uh, has that funny video about like where he's like firing weapons. I mean,
1: it's this video is bananas. Yeah, that, wasn't he like, didn't he get famous because of Oprah? Well, I don't know what the beginning of him being famous was, but Anyway, uh, overly intrusive so, government. That it's I so wanted, bizarre. <laughs> that I want to see that of. video. Like, because I think of him as the guy with the daily talk show talking right. about like health and alternative medicine mm-hmm. and stuff like that. And like suddenly, he's like out shooting guns and you know talking about all this stuff that like, is this real? Like, it are you just look like creating this character because you're running for office? Yeah. railing against the government to your point. Uh, you know, in an attempt to become part of the government.
2: Yes. They rail against the government to try to become part of the government so they can do nothing when children are murdered in their classroom. It's a strange obsession.
1: It really is. Yeah. It's also interesting. There's a weird like ironic twist to all of this because those that rail the hardest against mask mandates in schools, like kind of decrying the mental health implications of kids having to wear masks in the classroom are the same people who are not interested in gun control measures that would reduce the likelihood of a school shooting.
2: Yes. It's uh, and, so, and and want and want it to be more militarized. Want yeah, the want so, the classroom right. to be more militarized. Right. Not so less what is militarized. the what
1: what are the mental yeah. health implications on kids of schools being hyper militarized?
2: Well that, that same Times column uh, is basically saying he thinks like the more militarized you make it, the more you bring up school shootings, the more you um, have these kind of active shooter drills, the more likely some kid, Somebody's some disturbed kid right, is gonna. Course. Yeah, so it's a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, that kind of stuff happens, Like right? We've talked about that. I think last time we talked, when we talked about uh abortion, we mm-hmm. talked about the same hypocrisies. Like I want liberty, but you can't have an abortion, you know, like, and vice versa. I'm pro-choice, but you have to wear the mask. And we we talked about that. It's not necessarily an equal mm-hmm. thing, but you know, there is, there is that irony that we are always trying to that often it's the side of convenience um it's just it's more grotesque in this instance yeah yeah
1: before we move on, I did wanna circle back on David Frum yep. because I think he has done some compelling writing on this. Again, he's a, he's a conservative, a traditional conservative with a pretty rational take. He's when you say Canadian, traditional
2: conservative, you mean?
1: Like just to, you know, he was, a, he was a Republican. I can't remember what administration he worked in, but, you know, he has a long history of, you know, being a conservative thinker, but also a really smart guy who is outraged by what he's seeing right now in terms of, gun violence and has written a bunch of pieces for the Atlantic, which I'll, I'll hyperlink in the show notes because I think they're worth your time. And uh, anything else we wanna point out on this before um, we
2: pivot to Corey? Well, I mean, the, the when you think about what David Frum is saying is basically some of the same stuff that we've been talking about, right? Like he wants rational measures that make it harder for kids and innocent people to be killed
1: Mm -hmm.
2: en masse. Like this is all we're asking for. So we we can only hope that that we're heading in that direction.
1: We need a little bit more than hope. Yeah. And it goes back to that despairing when you see Columbine and Sandy Hook and nothing happens. And here we are again, it did feel different with Uvalde. It did. Because the nation and, and really the world was so, Outraged and activated by that, that there was a sense like, okay, maybe this is the point where the tide turns. Our greatest fear, of course, being that we just move on. And the way that our news cycle happens so quickly these days, you know, that's my fear.
2: That we're just going to move on and forget about it
1: Mm -hmm. until it happens again. And then we'll have the same conversation and the same conversation. So
2: that's what we hope doesn't happen because we mm -hmm. thought. Sandy Hook was gonna be the end of the line, right? Where something mm-hmm. would finally happen and it didn't work out.
1: Right, and we should also point out that in terms of, of SCOTUS, um, we're anticipating a decision. It could be in the next few weeks. I think it's meant for the fall, but the, the Supreme Court is on the precipice of delivering an opinion in the case of New York State Rifle and Pistol Association versus Bruin, which is a decision that could strike down Concealed carry bans, even in the few states that still have them. So basically, that would mean more guns, more places, fewer checks, fewer protections. It's basically, you know, this punctuation mark on how we're moving backwards and and downwards. And to use David Frum's words, you know, kind of plunging towards barbarism.
2: Right. Because
1: SCOTUS is obviously unshackled from public opinion and the legislature and it's packed to the right right now. So they're positioned to make a decision that could very well make that possible.
2: There's a couple of things that are also popping up though that can be looked at as positive. I believe that the police, the national kind of police union consortium that represents all the police unions in different localities has come out um, in favor of you know, some gun control in the in the wake of Valdi, that's happened. Governor Newsom, they just passed a law here in California that you can sue somebody who's involved in a mass shooting. You can sue them, and you can sue anybody involved in helping them carry out their mass shooting. Same, it's basically using that same abortion law that's been passed in some states, mm-hmm. in Republican states, and using that same lawsuit idea that you can, as private citizen, can sue. Someone who gets an abortion right. can sue the doctor. Mm-hmm. Same idea in, in this sense. You can sue the gun uh, shop that sells the weapon. Um, you can sue the person who's involved and the family that's involved. Um, so there's, there's, there are people trying different new tactics, new things. This police union is not typically someone that, uh, an organization that gets right. onto progressive causes. So the fact is this should not be a progressive, should not be a right or left cause. It's uh, the welfare of our children.
1: Yeah, and as the polling demonstrates, it isn't a left or right thing. It's an everybody thing. It is. Mm -hmm. All right, so uh, we're gonna take a quick break and we'll reconvene with the good Senator and hopefully he has some thoughts for us. We're brought to you today by SEED, gut health, far beyond the shenanigans of the supplement world is Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. It's the most solid science-based and rigorously evidence-backed probiotic and prebiotic on the market. Formulated for optimal digestion, gut immune function, gut barrier integrity, skin health. In fact, my 16 year old daughter has been using it to clear up a significant acne issue and it's been wonderful as well as many other systemic benefits. Like I said, I've been taking it daily, personally, for years, I love it, my body loves it. And right now for our listener community, Seed is offering 25% off your first month of Seed's DSO-1 Daily Symbiotic. Visit seed.com slash richroll and use the code richroll25 to redeem this offer that's seed.com slash richroll or code richroll25. We're brought to you today by recovery.com.
0: hey rich how are you how's it going man uh it's it's uh been an emotionally raw stretch but uh yeah you know, i I wouldn't want people to think wrongly of me when i say i go to bed uh, with you uh often <laughs> uh, um, I promise not to say that publicly, although this is being recorded now, so that could be held against me. <laughs> yeah. But I just finished uh just finished your talk with a guy I've loved, uh, even though he back then he was a think tank on the other side of the aisle, but I've always loved uh Arthur Brooks. He's just uh, such Arthur a Arthur Brooks. Yeah, that was a great conversation.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, I'm so I'm touched and honored that you make the time to listen to the show. I can't believe that's possible. But you know, Arthur makes my job easy. He's such a you know a beautiful font of wisdom. And it is interesting as, you know, him being somebody who was head of a conservative think tank, um, my sense is that he, he really doesn't wanna talk about politics. That's not his interest level right no, now.
0: No, I mean, you covered it well, which, you know, all of us being in our 50s, he definitely has made a shift away from this crazy think tank world. But he was moving that way. He wrote this amazing book about love, um, which I think was one before this one. That I, I, I my stack of books right now is just trying to figure out how do we talk to each other in a country that's spiraling uh, in in kind of a, into a culture of contempt. Yeah, and he's thought been really thoughtful about that, and I think highly influenced by the Dalai Lama.
1: Yeah, I think that's I think that's accurate, and uh, you know I think that's a, a good place to just jump right into it. I mean I know your time is tight,
0: and I really appreciate you carving out the staff. They said fifteen yeah, minutes. I I've been looking to talk to Rich Roll for like. Since I started listening to his podcast, I fell in love with your uh, podcast. It was one of your best of years, you know, like at the end of the year, you do the, you sample from all the runs. So I've been looking to to have a conversation with you for a very long time. So I told my staff to give me at least an extra 15 minutes because I knew I was going to fanboy all over you for the first 15 and we wouldn't get to the subject matter.
1: Well, you got me all buttered up and I'm gonna hold you to that because I'm definitely, you know, somebody who wants to get you in the studio and we'll do the full kit and caboodle podcast at, at some point when your schedule permits.
0: Your journey, I, I read Finding Ultra and I think that you can see, in my opinion, the universe sort of using you. I think that not only athletics, but also your struggles with, with addiction have made your power of empathy and your ability to connect. You know, I always say that broken people uh, we're all broken more than we maybe want to, admit. Mm. not only does it let good stuff in, but it also creates more points of contact, which you can connect with other broken people. And I think that, uh, you have this, uh, wonderful ability to, uh, connect with the people you interview that in, in a, in a real way, in a substantive way to go a little deeper than some of the general interviews we often see. And I think that's a gift. Yeah. I appreciate,
1: I appreciate that. It's an honor to be able to do it, and it's certainly nourishing for me. And uh, to be able to kind of give it back to the audience is just, you know, something that just gives my life purpose and meaning. So I'm very grateful to be on this journey and to be talking to you today, my friend. Thank you. Let's get into it.
0: Yeah, please go
1: ahead. Um, you know, obviously, the country is under a lot of strain right now. We're enduring some challenges, not the least of which is all of the mass shootings, uh, what transpired in Uvalde and subsequent incidents that we've all uh, borne witness to these tragic events. And so I really wanted to kind of focus the limited time that, that we have with you today on the subject of gun violence and gun control. And I thought it might be beneficial to just hear your perspective. Like what is your bird's eye view on kind of where we're at as a nation? How are you thinking about this issue right now? And perhaps like, some thoughts on why this is so intractable in terms of finding solutions.
0: So I'm a kid that grew up in the suburbs of uh, New Jersey and not part of a hunting culture. My granddad did take me out once, but, you know, it was a suburban town outside of New York and gun violence didn't affect my life. But I've lived the last, um, God, since the late 90s in New York, New Jersey, in the Central Ward. And... Um, gun violence immediately impacted my life on my first nights sleeping in an apartment. I got across the street from the projects. And I eventually moved into them. I started hearing gunshots and at night, i still remember coming out one day and there being a sort of the tail end of a shooting. And since then I've lost, uh, young kids I've known, uh, to gun violence and, and seen the horrific everyday realities of gun violence in America. And it's often the violence we don't talk about. It's Stunning to me how we as a nation doesn't even pop into our consciousness unless we have these horrific mass shootings. But every single day, on average, more than 300 Americans are shot. Uh, over 100 Americans die. And the violence is everything from domestic violence, which we don't talk about, to suicides, which we don't talk about enough. Um, and now we have this stunning rise of of hate in our country where since 9-11, we've lost more Americans due to Americans killing Americans, right-wing groups from synagogues to churches to supermarkets, um, and then obviously uh, school shootings like we just had. So this is a very personal issue for me, uh, some of my own personal trauma uh, being in and around shootings. And, and so I came here as the only United States senator that lives in a low-income black and brown neighborhood who's had shootings on their block. Most recently, in 2018, a young man, Shahad, who I I used to live in the same building with, um, the police uh, officer who was giving me the account, said it was like his head blew up. It was an assault rifle that we got. And so it's been frustrating to me to live in a country where, you know, in the time that you and I have been alive, as guys in their 50s, we've had more people die to gun violence than in every single war in America combined. Yeah. And so when you start asking me why something hasn't changed, I think it's too easy and convenient to say it's just Washington because we've seen change happen against impossible odds before when four little girls died in the bombing in Birmingham. You you saw a nation mobilize to demand change. And as I remind people all the time about this place, you know, there's an old trope Saying here that they say often that change doesn't come from Washington, it comes to Washington. You know, it wasn't a bunch of guys on the Senate floor in the 1920s that said, hey, fellas, let's give these women a right to vote. It happened because people demanded it. Uh, As Frederick Douglass says, if there's no struggle, there's no progress. Power concedes nothing without a demand. Mm
2: -hmm. And
0: so we have tolerated for a very long time in this country a level of carnage and violence and death that we've almost normalized. Because days and days go by without us doing enough. And so I can give you stuff that you know, and I, I've heard, listened to you enough of your podcast, and I've heard you express understandable skepticism, if not cynicism, about Washington and politics. There are very powerful lobbies. There's money. There's, you know, people's ambition. You know, there is a real consequence to Congress people running in red districts where, districts have been drawn where they're always worried about being primaried by somebody on their right i was on meet the press recently with a guy who just lost a senate race who lowered violence in his north carolina city 50 percent, but he was running against somebody that had a gun in their belt he said for most of their commercials and he lost in a primary because the guy casted him soft on guns
1: Mm -hmm.
0: but i think that's a convenient and easy excuse just to blame it on Washington. it's almost like yeah Surrendering responsibility and not understanding that we all have a role to change this nightmare, and it's more than just those real things that I just I just mentioned.
1: Yeah, I think uh, you know that that makes me you know want to know more about. And my colleague Adam Skolnick is is on the line too, and I know he wants to chime in on this the kind of lived experience of you being a legislator, a senator, and and, and what that experience is like that perhaps we're not aware of. Like to the extent that there's frustration, like why can't we just get a law passed or what is actually going on? Like when you, as somebody who cares deeply about this issue and is working so diligently to, change the law and move our country forward in a new direction on this subject matter. Like what are the obstacles that you encounter on a daily basis or or what do we as the public not see about what that is like for you?
0: So look, I've seen the best of this place and I've seen the worst of it, you know, where we've been able to hammer out really great bills. You know, our criminal justice system is an outrage. We're a nation that takes our addicted are mentally ill, are poor, or black and brown. We stick them in jails when they often need help or health care or counseling or trauma or treatment. And we put them in our jails. And you know, we've passed some good bills to try to start changing mm-hmm. this nation from being the country where we still are, with one out of every three incarcerated women on the planet Earth are in the United States. And so we've passed some bills that have liberated thousands of people. That's the best of us. Um, we have a long way to go, though. And I've seen the worst of us. You know, we just passed an anti-lynching bill um, more than a century after it was first introduced when thousands of Blacks were being killed and we couldn't even make lynching a federal crime until 2022. And so I, you know, I've seen the, um, the corporate gun lobby and how powerful they are. I've seen them change. I think after Columbine, Wayne LaPierre said, uh, you know, we need to make universal background checks. He was for a lot of things but the culture has slipped on on the sort of within the NRA world where they are resisting and fighting any change whatsoever and they are a very powerful lobby for people who are concerned about um, re-election and so like right now we're, we're I've watched now I've been here 8 9 years and I have seen those Americans who are really willing to do something different dig in organize um, put show more pressure on politics, um, change laws on states. You know, since Parkland, there's been a whole lot of state laws that have changed for the better. But here um, it's been more difficult. I think we're actually going to get something done. You know, I was talking with Senator Murphy and a a group of House members that there's hope here that something can get done. But I'm going to be candid. It's going to be very incremental, necessary things, but nowhere near sufficient to end the kind of carnage, what we're seeing on a regular basis. yeah.
2: Mm. Um, Senator Booker, is you're talking about the election cycle and, and the pressure to get reelected. Um, you know, when we see these stats of the NRA and how much they're contributing to people like Mitt Romney or, you know, Mitch McConnell, people who you could argue are bigger than the NRA in some ways. They have their own kind of brand, but they're still under the sway of an organization like that. Does that speak to how hard it is to raise money and compete in politics? Like, what is the draw there? Or like, is it more that they're afraid of the primary? Like, what do you think is the draw for some of these bigger names that you think would be able to win without them?
0: So again, you're uh, getting into the psychology of your colleagues is often a a dangerous odyssey you can lose your own mind trying to figure out people's different motivations um the nra is not the biggest donor down here and and money i mean it's really one of the toxins of our of our government i think uh when citizens united passed and corporations now can pour tons and tons of money strengthens the corporate gun lobby because remember these are corporations who are having a field day they're selling guns in our country at a level that we could have never imagined. Every man, woman and child in America from babies to 99 year olds could have one gun and then we'd still have 70 million more guns mm-hmm. out in our streets. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know if it's just the money they're contributing. And you know, again, I, like for example, I gave up all corporate money. It was a fourth center to do so. I just didn't want to give anybody reason to question my motives. Um, but I know that there, are, as you said, there are people that can raise money if they didn't get the whatever $30,000 from the corporate gun lobby, but they, I think their power, a lot of it lies in their ability to mobilize people and get them out to vote singularly on this issue. Mm. And that's a pretty powerful, if you know, you're in a election where if you don't have that a rating and you're going to be, you're going to be beat up by it, by somebody else, who really has whipped up this idea that this person is going to be a part of the group in Washington that's going to try to take away your guns you know when gun sales spike when democrats get elected because they have again and you can listen to the to the rhetoric because they're told people are told that you're going to lose your people who believe the very narrow version believe that they're going to lose your gun rights so that's a base not in my world but that's a base i think for that people are concerned about in primaries. Mm.
1: Yeah, what's interesting is that, that being said, it does seem like the NRA is out of step with its constituency because the polling demonstrates clearly that most people are in favor of rational gun control. And yet the NRA still wields so much power to you know rebut the public sentiment on this issue. And so I guess I'm curious about, Um, You mentioned uh, Senator Murphy, Chris Murphy from Connecticut. He's put together this bipartisan consortium of legislators to really work on rational gun control. Like, are you like sanguine about the possibilities here? Because that does seem like something that's new and different from what we've seen in the past.
0: Yeah, I just want to dwell on that point you made first, which is such an important point, and I should have mentioned it already. This is not a partisan issue. It really is not, and the problem often with our country is we try to um, reduce things into the binary world as Democrat Republican. I've listened to your show enough to know that you realize that's not the case. I mean, the stranglehold that Big Ag has down here is not a partisan issue. Mm-hmm. Chemicals that are being sprayed on our foods that are in our bloodstream, breast milk, and the like—it's not a partisan issue. Tech issues. not partisan issues and we as americans have so much more in common the lines that divide us are nowhere near as strong as the ties that bind us but this political industrial complex that will try to parse us along these tribes uh, and make us believe that we're different that's a problem there's a whole raft of common sense gun safety things that i've seen comedians go to nra conventions and ask people about universal background checks. And you just see these NRA members saying all this about, I'm worried about my guns being taken. All Oh, but you know, universal background checks, heck yeah, we need to have them to stop criminals from getting guns. So this is not a partisan issue amongst Americans. It's a partisan issue down here. And that's a lot of the disconnect. Folks have got to, um, uh, on the Republican side, Democratic side, whatever you identify, begin to make this a central issue in, in your political behavior. Mm-hmm. As far as me being uh, optimistic, I'm, look, I'm a prisoner of hope, but I always differentiate hope from optimism. Hope stares the wretched truth of the world in the face, doesn't deny it, but still believes ultimately that something can be done. And so I've seen this come around and I can't, if I lost hope that we could do something, I, I don't think I could continue doing this job. I will tell you again that Washington watchers do think that there are the makings right now because of, you know, Chris Murphy said this to me today, said this to a group of us today, that his sense was that a lot of folks went home and heard from people within their, that identify as their tribe, the Republicans, and and were so dismayed about this. Because at the end of the day, we are all hugging our children if you have them before they go to school. There's a lot of that worry I think that they're feeling, which is opening the door to do a little bit. But I do not have a belief that in this bill, we're gonna see the kind of comprehensive things that most Americans, Republican, Democrat, Independent would wanna see.
1: But we gotta start, just like Trevor Noah's uh, monologue the other day, like we have to start somewhere and we gotta iterate yes. on that. And just to get and I, and, I, and I'm sorry, I, just, I, love,
0: I love history. Yeah. people look at the civil rights movement thinks it was in the sixties people started in the, you know uh, you know, a Philip Randolph and others were working on a March on Washington far before the one we know about in the sixties, they were doing activism and protests and working and making small changes. Uh, Thurgood Marshall was out there changing laws and and more. So I agree with you. First of all, we have started the Parkland kids, the moms demand action, Gabby Gifford's organization. There's a chapter in every single state of Moms Demand Action, for example, that are making a difference in local elections, city, county, state elections. So this is a movement. The question is, is are you a part of it or not? Because I think what Martin Luther King said at very frustrating points in the civil rights movement, remember his letters from the Birmingham jail were not to the racists, he was talking to good people. And what he said is what we have to repent in this day and age, and these words echo in this moment, what we have to repent for is not simply the vitriolic words and violent actions of the bad people, but the appalling silence and inaction of the good people. And so that's the question. Is to me, it's very binary. Don't tell me what your beliefs are. Uh, show me who you are through your actions. Are you part of the movement to change these laws? Are you doing more than you did before Uvalde? Are you doing more than you did before Buffalo? Or are you doing the same things you were doing before those two mass shootings and expecting other people to make the change that you want to see in your country? Mm.
1: Yeah.
2: You, you spoke about, um, this kind of increased contempt in terms of the volume, I guess that's speaking to polarization, but also speaking to kind of, I guess, information silos and how that can turn up the volume and the heat on some issues like this one. It seems like a tragedy like this, the breaking of, of all of us, right? If if the United States is our common body and, and we're and we're broken, it seems like that should be the place to latch on and to do some good, right? I mean, that's what we were talking about, but maybe before we started to record this interview, how a time of brokenness can be a time, can be the perfect time to come together. Are you seeing anything like that? Uh, I know that you're kind of trying to, to make us not expect too much from this coming law. but are you see, are you seeing any of that? Are you hearing any of that in the hallways? Um, a little bit more coming together at all?
0: So I, I do think that they're hurt and, and shattered more than broken how much we a lot of us have been is creating a climate for change and, and the rhythms of Washington DC are often those moments where, of where we share a common pain sometimes we can find common purpose. And that's, again, one of the reasons why I think we're going to get something incremental done, or at least I'm hoping and praying that we will. But I have to be candid with you. We had a hearing today all about uh, replacement theory. And for those who don't know what that is, it's been around for generations. It was around about the Catholics and the Southern Europeans that were coming here to replace Protestant Americans um it's this idea that there is a quote-unquote true american i'm a black guy who can skip gates trace my history back to the 1640s in this country but there's this idea that uh uh, and you hear it you remember the the marching with tiki torches in virginia jews will not replace us so the, the professors that were there and the experts that were there at this hearing it was stunning to hear and, and to look at the data about the mainstreaming of these views. He, he really called it just like this resurgence of the Klan in the 1920s, which then it was a lot of Catholics hate and, and the like. And how we're at a perilous moment for our democracy where you're seeing larger and larger portions view an us versus them within this country and not just us, where we're all one people with one destiny. And so I would be, I don't want a candy coat the truth of our country right now. There is a rise in hate. There is a rise in resentment. There is a culture of contempt. There are these devices that are in our lives now that have algorithms that are profiting off of making us uh, more uh, emotional and more involved. I, I tell the story even about, I'm pointing to my TV, where uh, you know a, a friend of mine had a show on CNN, his is Van Jones, called Crossfire. And uh, I love what Brene Brown says. She says, it's hard to hate up close, so pull people in. And they decided, when him and Newt Gingrich realized they, they were proximate to each other and had lots in common, they wanted to do the last segment as ceasefire. And then after a few episodes of that, the producers stopped them because they said ratings were going down. So we have got people who are realizing the incentive, their corporate incentive, their political incentive. As I said in the hearing, if I yelled at Donald Trump during the State of the Union address, if I heckled him and screamed, you lie, you liar, I may have had a really great fundraising quarter the next quarter. I know that because when somebody yelled that to Barack Obama, they had an incredibly great fundraising quarter. And so we're building this powder keg right now where we've literally seen people whipped up to storm the capital of the United States. And remember, they had symbols of anti Semitism and racism there, where people's are being preyed upon, their vulnerabilities, their hurt, their trauma, their fears are being preyed upon by leaders. And that's my biggest worry for my country right now, for our country. I, I really worry that if we can't figure this out, if our tribalism becomes deeper and it's no longer an objective analysis, say this person believes in these values, these um ideas and this idea, but it's more Uh, tribalism. We demonize each other. We, we, we so uh, hate each other that we can't even talk to each other. I worry about the the future of our country. We have got to figure out a way. And is this tied to the violence that we are seeing? Absolutely. It is. Mm -hmm. And so I just will finish this point by saying to you that I'm not despondent because I believe in the radical redemptive power of love. And I've seen the data, the scientific data, that love goes viral too. In fact, if you're as a Stanford researchers, uh, Rich Art, Alma Mata, uh, that have shown that just witnessing a kind act changes your biochemistry and makes you more likely to make change. And you can follow it two or three degrees of separation. But we are going to need a lot more committed Americans to, despite your whipped up differences with somebody, that you can still find ways to create connection and see common dignity and see common destiny and when you ask me about how things get done down here how they really get done one of the best examples of getting through the crap and the obstacles is is a story of my implicating myself on my own bias we all have implicit biases and there's a guy who's retiring named Inhofe, an oklahoma senator who you know, we vilify on our, our side sometimes. He carried a snowball down to the Senate floor to show that there was no climate change. But when I got down here, my mentor, a guy named Bill Bradley, told me go to dinner with your colleagues, find ways to have one on ones with them. And I went to Bible study in Inhofe's office. And I'll never forget walking in and I saw on his uh, shelf a picture of him. And this challenged my implicit bias because I never thought I'd see this kind of picture. I saw a picture of him and a little black girl. And I said, Sir, who, who's that? And he says, It's my daughter. And he tells me this powerful story about him adopting her out of tough circumstances. Fast forward months later, many months later, there's a big education bill going through. And I want to get an amendment on this bill about homeless and foster kids. And I'm told there's no amendments being allowed. Lamar Alexander was blocking the bill. But I remembered this point of human connection. And I went to Inhofe, summoning the spirit of his daughter and the connection I felt with his humanity that we often don't see when we're on different sides of the political aisle. And I'll never forget. He told me, I will co-sponsor your amendment on a bill that no amendments were being allowed. I had this powerful chairman. Then I got Chuck Grassley. Then we got other Republicans. And it's now the law of the land. And that's just one small story. Mm. But I think we need millions of those stories in all of our lives to begin to start to heal the fabric and break through the bias and the venom and all those who profit off of our hate or our contempt for each other.
1: Very powerfully put and beautifully stated. I mean, thank you for that. I mean, certainly love, connection, these are the antidotes to the rift that is increasingly dividing us and the misalignment of incentives, whether technological or economic, that are driving this. I mean, we're close enough in age, Senator, that we remember a time when a crisis befell our country, it brought us together. It didn't drive us apart into our silos and make us argue with each other. And it really is an existential crisis. And if we can't see our way forward from that, none of the other issues are ever gonna get addressed. So I appreciate you pointing that out. And I know your time is running out with us, but, it was amazing to have a few minutes to talk to you. And I appreciate you sharing with us and our, our audience. And, and I really do hope that at some point in the not too distant future I can sit down with you in person and do a full-blown podcast.
0: Hey, Rich, can I make one more uh perhaps emotional plea to your audience? Yeah. Is, sure. I I love your podcast. I love listening to the two of you uh go edit during uh during the uh the new kind of evolution of your podcast mm-hmm. where you have this you two interstitially. And I just trust and believe that not only is your podcast strong, but it appeals to people across the political spectrum and from all different backgrounds. And the appeal I want to make to you is that I was doing a New York Times editorial and they asked me, they were doing fun questions at the end. They were asking, interviewing all the Democratic presidential candidates and they asked me funny questions. And they asked me a question, what was the biggest mistake you've ever made? And I thought they think they thought they were going to get a light answer. And I said, look, the biggest mistake I made was when I was living in these high-rise projects in the lobby of the building. I lived there for eight years, this place called Brick Towers. And I watched these little amazing boys grow up, all Black boys. The leader of the crew was my dad incarnate, and they were so similar. Uh, They were both whip-smart, charismatic, born leaders, both born at or below the poverty line, both weren't raised by their mothers raised by their grandmothers there's just so many similarities it was eerie to me one day i came home smelling something i hadn't smelled since the days of the enchanted broccoli forest uh rich uh i smelled it often at stanford but i smelled it in my lobby which was pot and you know stanford students have a lot more wider margins to experiment with drugs than black kids in inner city communities and i immediately thought to myself i gotta lean in more and i took them to the movies and i took them you know, out to diners. I asked them what their dreams were, and they were really humble dreams. Um, I still remember uh, when one of them told me they wanted to learn how to repair cars and maybe one day have a shop. And I, boom, I thought, okay, I'm going to fix you guys up with mentors that can help you with all of your dreams and made commitments to them that I didn't immediately follow through on because I was too busy. I was running to become mayor of the city in Newark. And even though I was busy and didn't follow through, they would still greet me in the lobby on the end of long campaigning days and cheer me on, lift me up. And then I get elected and I have death threats against me. So they surround me with police officers, station cops in the lobby of the building and the project safest projects I think i had been in a long time. But the kids, I don't care who you are. High school kids don't want to hang out where the police are. So I just didn't see these young people. But in the back of my mind, I'm like, I'm on a mission to help all the children of the city. I'm not, I know I'll reconnect with them soon. And then a month into my time in office, I'm called to uh, Court Street in Newark, and I get there after a shooting, and there's a body covered up, and I barely affirm the death on the sidewalk, and I'm too busy ministering to the, le- to the living and telling them what we're going to do to drive crime down. And um, I get home that night, and I'm going through my BlackBerry, reading reports, and the name of the murder was Hassan, the young man from my lobby. Hmm. And I will never tell you, talk about shattered. God literally put my dad in front of me. My dad used to talk about the conspiracy of love, all the small acts of kindness that helped him get from a rural poor black boy in the 1930s and 40s to become an IBM executive, all the acts of kindness, people going out of their way. And here I had a chance to pay it forward. And I'll never forget going to his funeral, which was like in the bottom of the Perry's Funeral Home in Newark. And it was like descending into the hull of a ship. We were all tied together in grief, wailing and moaning, chained to this horrific daily occurrence in America, which is another young boy in a box. And it haunts me to this day, and I regret it to this day, that I didn't do more. And so I don't know what it will take for all of us to understand that we are so connected that what you do matters, that no matter how busy you are, there's something more you can do to end this death, the pain, the hurt, the the devastation that happens when a young man commits suicide or a a woman gets killed by her boyfriend or a gun, a legal weapon because it was not a background check gets into the streets of communities like mine and is used for, a horrific murder. And so my appeal to the folks here is that democracy is not a spectator sport. It really isn't. You get the government you deserve. And people before us sacrifice, sweat, bled. We're willing to die to try to bend the arc of this nation's moral truth. And if there's, not, if there's ever a time to lean in more, to change something that's not partisan, it's right now. Because you and I I worry, even though I think we're going to pass some legislation, I worry that, that you may call me up and say, hey, can we have another 15 minutes to have a conversation about why do we have another mass shooting? And this time, God forbid, if you're a listener here, God forbid, it's your neighborhood, your school, your mosque, your supermarket, your neighborhood. And you're wondering why I didn't do more to stop that pain and that horror from visiting upon your life. Wow. <clears throat> That's amazing words,
2: Senator. Thank you so yeah. much for telling us that and sharing that. It's, mm-hmm. it's like, it must weigh heavy every day, these kinds of things that you've witnessed and then also hear about. You must get every day and another tragic story like that. How do you deal with that on a daily basis? Like the responsibility you carry and the weight of all of that?
0: Um, look, I am who I am because a community that I'm not from embraced me, a young law student from Yale who thought I was uh, some kind of savior and uh, knocked me on my ass. Uh, People like Frank Hutchins and uh, Miss Virginia Jones, Miss Yancey, you know, um, Miss Wright. I can tell you the women who taught me. I say I got my BA from Stanford, but my PhD on the streets of Newark. And I have too many stories about gun violence, but, you know, on the worst moment for me, uh, because it was just so traumatizing. Uh, we hear these stories about the shootings, but we're not seeing the bodies. Well, I was on a scene of a shooting where a teenager got shot multiple times, and I was the person trying to stop them from bleeding to death. And it was the most gruesome thing I had ever experienced. His foamy blood was coming from his mouth, blood pouring from his chest, and I just, I just was doing. I think about it now. I no training, so I'm sticking my hand in his mouth, thinking if I just can clear away the passage for him to breathe because he's choking on his blood. And and I remember that night trying to scrub this boy's blood off of my hands. And I remember I have never felt more anger at my country than I did then. And I never felt more of a, of wanting to quit and just be done with this. Why was I even trying? When the problem seemed so much bigger than me. And I came down into that lobby where the boys hang out the next morning and Walk through the lobby. It was early in the morning. So nobody was there. And I walk into the courtyard. And, you know, this is why I believe in a larger power, because I was drowning. I was done. It was over. And then I see the tenant president, this elderly woman, Miss Virginia Jones, who had her son murdered in the lobby in which I lived uh, years before I moved in. A woman had every reason to move out of those projects. In fact, I know the money she made. I know where she worked. She didn't have to live in this dangerous neighborhood, especially after her son was killed. And I remember walking out and being frozen because I saw her back to me. And then she turns around, almost like she could hear my hurt. And then she sees me. And she does the only thing that I needed at that moment. Not to say a word. She just opened her arms. And I ran across that courtyard like a little boy, running to his mom Mm -hmm. and I'm much bigger than she is, but I felt like I disappeared in her arms and she held me. And this is the gift she gave me as I started sobbing. She just said two words over and over that were hold on to now when I hurt and when I get angry and when I don't understand my country and where I want to give up. And I think about women like that who, who never give up. I think about kids from Parkland who turn their pain into purpose. I think of moms demand action. People have lost and turned their hurt uh, into action. And this woman just rubs my back and she says two words that I held on to during my time as mayor and in my toughest days here. And she just says to me, she's rubbing my back. She says, stay faithful, stay faithful, stay faithful. And so I believe that What real hope is about, it's like Miss Jones. It's like hope is the active conviction that despair will never have the last word, that no matter how much it visits upon you, you still have agency, you still have power, even if it's just the defiance of keeping going and not giving up. And so, yeah, I see shrines on my streets, Mm. teddy bears and candles too many damn times. And it's unfortunately Black children or Latino children who don't seem to count as much sometimes to the media. Uh, They don't seem to get the same coverage. And I get angry about systems that date back to, you know, when we had overt redlining, they've created a lot of the pain and hurt. But I will tell you this, we've come this far by faith, and I have no right to give up, especially when others didn't. And the, the real challenge I see, again, is how do we make other people care I don't need to change one person's mind who might believe that we shouldn't pass universal background checks or gun licensing, or I don't have to change one person's mind. All we have to do is get the people who share our beliefs, which is the majority of us, to do a lot more, to show their faith. Because as my religious tradition says, and it's a a terrible foreboding thing to say, but it says faith without works is dead.
1: Mm -hmm. (sighs) very true. Um, Wow, I'm just trying to process everything that you just shared. It's such a powerful story. And I think if you can carry that resonance of hope and channel that into action, it's inspiring for the rest of us who might feel paralyzed or powerless or as if, you know, our actions don't really matter because they do. And in this democratic republic that we're privileged to live in, it's incumbent upon all of us to shoulder that responsibility and, and, and do what we can to put in motion uh, the better world that we want for ourselves and, and future generations.
0: And a lot of, you know, you have a lot of athletes that listen to this. And it's just very obvious, like nothing worthwhile is easy. Nothing that I watched you do you don't just get up in the morning and win a national championship or win a heavyweight boxing match. It is hard. It takes endurance and resilience and pushing through pain and pushing through a setback. Uh, But that's what it takes to be great. And I do believe in the greatness of this country. I think American history is a perpetual testimony to the achievement of the impossible. But we who are the inheritors of this impossible dream that is America have got to, as I failed to do in that one instance with my dad, we've got to prove worthy of it by paying it forward through our sacrifice and our struggle. Mm -hmm. You mentioned, um,
2: just if I could trouble you with just one last recommendation because you've been so generous with your time, but you mentioned that you're asking us to to give more and do more. And I see like a lot of the the volume on the political discussion has gone up. The frequency that the average person is talking about politics has gone way up. And a lot of that you poignantly pointed out is related to our phones and obviously that addiction. But- often what we're doing is just shouting into the void. There's not really much getting accomplished other than a bunch of information soup, which doesn't help us, actually, it hurts us. What would you say would be some, you've mentioned some great organizations, what kind of, uh, if there's a couple concrete steps that you could recommend for listeners to kind of get involved or a first step to getting more active?
0: Yeah, I would find others and connect with others that are, that are doing that. I mean, this is the great thing about America now, and these devices. I have to say, because I don't want to say there's only negative to them, is that your fingertips away are the ability to connect with people that are probably two or three steps ahead of you, sometimes ten or a mile ahead of you, and understanding what makes a difference, makes a change. And so, do some research. Find these organizations. Find these people who are committed to this kind of change, and never underestimate that you can make a difference. I've seen incredibly imaginative young people find ways to bring pressure to bear amongst people in power. It's really extraordinary. And and this will be it because my staff always stands up. <laughs> when I, yeah. You got to go. But I yeah. am the living evidence that you doing a little bit of something can change the world. And I always say this because there was this white guy sitting on a couch in Jersey in 1965, uh, watching TV and just chilling out. I think it was a Sunday and this was back when we only had three channels and they break away. The movie most Americans were watching that night was a movie called Judgment at Nuremberg. And suddenly he sees these black, not, these, these people on a bridge called the Edmund Pettus Bridge being viciously beaten. And he's so disturbed by it. He's like, I gotta go to Alabama. And then he laughs at himself because he just started a business. He can't afford a ticket even to Alabama. So this guy does what is a great American tradition. He just thinks to himself, okay, I'm just gonna do the best I can with what I have where I am. And he does a calculus in his mind. And he thinks to himself, okay, I could spare one hour a week of pro bono work. And he does what I just advised you to do. He calls around, back then he didn't have an internet. <laughs> calls around to figure out who might need a one hour pro bono civil rights legal work. And he finds this young woman, she's now 93 years old, but this young, and she's still head of the same organization, finds this woman who's head of the Fair Housing Council in Northern New Jersey. And she's like, hallelujah, Jesus, I need help because we don't know how to stop. They won't let black people live in these neighborhoods. They keep showing up and they get steered away. And he goes, well, let's figure something out. And they designed this sting operation where they get volunteer white couples to volunteer to follow black couples around. And so what happens is he goes, four years later, I get this case file of this, Black family moving up from the South, getting turned away from house after house. He goes, we set up the sting. They fall in love with this house. They're told it's already sold. They leave. The white couple comes. The house is for sale. They put a bid on the house. Papers are drawn up. On the day of the closing, the white couple doesn't show up. The lawyer does. And the black guy. And they confront the real estate agent. Real estate agent doesn't give up. He gets up and punches the lawyer in the face. Saves a Doberman pincher on the black guy. All this kind of rigmarole. And next thing you know, that Black family moves into this affluent, all-white town, as the father would say, that we are the four raisins in a tub of sweet vanilla ice cream. That family is my family. Mm. That's my story. Wow. That's how I got to where I grew up. And by 18 years old, I was a two-position high school All-American on my way to Stanford University on a full scholarship. And I would not be in this Senate office right now if it wasn't for some white guy years before I was born deciding to give one hour a week of pro bono work. Mm. So don't tell me that your actions right now, if you're listening to this, can't make a difference. What you do, if it's righteous and for a cause of justice and peace and security or the highest of human virtues, love, it resonates, it reverberates, it, it goes out across space and time and makes a difference. You may not live to see it or even have the gift of knowing it. But it makes a difference. And now more than ever, we need that kind of radical love and consistency to say, I'm going to give a little bit every day or every week or whatever you can do for the cause of my country.
1: Fantastic. Wow. I'm inspired. Adam, what are we going to do? We got to do more than <laughs> I got I got
2: to do at least yeah. 1 hour a week. I mean, I, I mean this, is, this is crazy. <laughs> That's an unbelievable story. Thank you yeah, so much incredible. you guys. Thank you so
0: much.
1: Yeah, thank, thank you, you thank Senator you. Booker. Really appreciate it. Uh have a great evening and 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 look forward to crossing paths again. I, I hope to
0: see you in LA. Yeah. In-person. Yeah, for sure. I'm holding you to it. I I'm trust me, man. We got a lot of so we need to talk about America's broken food system and how Washington, D.C. has created a system where only 2% of our ag subsidies go to the thing we tell people to eat the most of. So I'm looking forward to that. Hundred percent. And my uh, staff is all right. here. They, all, yeah, they all they're all waving. There
1: so we go. There we go. Thanks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, hey everybody. You're, you got a lot of fans. Thanks for letting the senator run long. Yeah. I thought we we're just getting fifteen minutes. We got it almost fifty minutes. So phenomenal. You've been very generous. Thank, Thank you. Everybody. Thank you. All right. Thanks, you guys. Cheers. Right. Bye bye now.